0: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Christmas in July, investors expecting a rate cut today, but will the Fed hint at more? China? Chill out. Apple's earnings beat as services grow, and Chinese demand stabilizes. And Biden's big night. CNN hosts the second Democratic presidential debate in Detroit. Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move on what's going to feel like a pretty historic day, I think, here on Wall Street. We could see and are expected to see the first rate cut from the Federal Reserve here in the U.S., For the first time in over a decade, fine. The cuts priced in here, what's going to be key ultimately is what they say about the future. Future cuts, of course. What we call the guidance here. And what a difference, of course, too. Seven months can make. The Fed rates back in December, but I won't go into that ahead of that decision. Let me give you a look at futures right now because they are higher, a bounce back from yesterday's pullback. It's not all about the Fed, though, guys, as well. What about the trade talks? Well, the Shanghai talks wrapped up incredibly quickly overnight no shanghai surprise as we said yesterday no big breakthroughs announced either officials say they'll talk again in september so i think we can prepare for more hardline campaign rhetoric in the meantime china's foreign ministry likened the u.s economy to a sick person today but what about their own economy chinese factory activity data for july Falling for the third straight month, though I will say an improvement on June's numbers. We'll also be getting plenty of factory activity numbers from around the world this week, too, to help gauge the broader trade war impact. We know already it's been a problem for the Eurozone economy. Second quarter growth came in barely above the flat line today, half the growth, in fact, of Q2. Stand ready to the European Central Bank right now. But what about over in Hong Kong, too? Their economy weakened in the second quarter, too. as months of protests as we've been discussing begin to bite i say that's plenty of international based ammunition for the federal reserve right now to justify easing the question is how much do they do And what hints do they give? Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. Claire, I've said it many times. It's not just about the cut that we get today, even if there is some debate. It's what about the guidance, particularly given the market's now priced around
1: three, three of these cuts for this year. Room for disappointment, perhaps. Definitely, Julia. I think the bottom line for this meeting is there is no way for the Fed to do something neutral. If they uh, do what the market expects, a 25 basis point cut, that's a 78% priced in by the market right now. That might be the most neutral outcome. But 22% of the market also pricing in a half point cut, that would be uh, bigger than most expect. And if they do nothing, the danger is they end up tightening financial conditions by default because this could lead to precipitous falls in the market. So what the, the, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell says is crucially important today. This is a communication uh, balancing act for him. And if you look at the past year in the market, studio, you can really see uh, how he's pivoted, how the market has hung on his every word uh, and how that has affected this. Look, uh, from October 3rd, where he said rates were a long way from neutral, suggesting that there were many more hikes to come to, th- to that last rate hike in December 19th to the pivot in January, where he said he would be patient in the statement. And finally, this phrase that we've now heard multiple times that he will act as appropriate to sustain the expansion. And that was the clearest sign uh, to that point that he, he was ready to cut rates. Uh, so, so, you know, we'll be looking for more language today. Language, probably the third monetary policy tool that we've got there, aside from rates and QE, Julia. Absolutely. I mean, to your point,
0: we've seen a Fed-fueled rally arguably this year, a Fed-fueled sell-off back in December, the worst December since what the great depression i mean there has been a lot of volatility here so you've got to argue here too i think that they've got to be very cautious one person who's not going to keep quiet is of course the president of the united states and he's going to continue to put pressure on here too at the same time the uncertainty is high look at what happened with trade it's a real tough one for them right now
1: data dependency are the two words right, and they have to keep that going. They have to keep telegraphing uh, to the markets and to everyone else that data dependency is the key, that they haven't been backed into a corner by the markets or by the president, who incidentally uh, was out yesterday again calling for, quote, a large cut from the Fed, saying again that if they they hadn't raised rates uh, fast, that the the markets would be 10,000 points higher uh, than they are. And of course, ironically, Julia, uh, a lot of the reason why the Fed has now pivoted over the last seven months is down to the president himself, his trade policy, and the uncertainty Around that, cynics and indeed serious economists have uh, speculated to me that there might be an ulterior motive behind prolonging this trade uncertainty for the president, that then the Fed uh, is forced to cut rates. That sends the market higher. And of course, we're getting deeper into the 2020 election season here.
0: Yeah, campaign mode, well and truly. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on now and talk Apple. iPhone sales may be down, but Apple's shares are up over 4% pre-market right now. Revenues and earnings, Beating much lowered expectations, I should point out. But also the outlook here was positive. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, everything growing here except iPhone sales, of course. But I have to say, and I'll reiterate, expectations coming into this quarter were incredibly muted. And I think that's part of the benefit that the share price is seeing pre-market here too.
2: Yeah, definitely, Julie. I think Apple uh, has uh, caught wise to the Wall Street game of if you uh, guide low initially and then ooze over that lowered bar, Wall Street will typically react in a positive fashion. And that's exactly what we have here. You know, the expectations were lower coming into this report. And even though, as you pointed out, iPhone revenue is down, which on the surface should be alarming. It's now less than 50 percent of the company's total sales. But I think the positive and Tim Cook, you got to give him credit because he's spinning this story and Wall Street is buying it right now, that the rest of Apple's businesses are growing at a healthy clip. So that includes the Mac, the iPhone uh, not doing well, but the iPad actually showing some growth. And then uh, all of those ancillary services, Apple Music and other subscription services growing as well. And then I think the other thing that Wall Street likes is that while China sales were down again, they are not down as much as they were in the prior quarter.
0: And this is key, I think too, because that was what caused a lot of the concern back in January amid and around what was going on in China. It's 20%. It contributes 20% of the anticipated upgrade cycle for the iPhone over the next 12 to 18 months. And Tim Cook was talking about a marked improvement in their business there. Stabilisation? Can we be that bold?
2: Yeah, if we are going to be so bold as to suggest that Apple may be, uh, you know, stabilizing in China and gaining some traction at the expense of some of the homegrown rivals that operate on the Android system, that is fantastic news for China. And of course, this is a company that is still buying back a lot of stock, paying a healthy dividend, and still has. billion or so in cash, a pretty massive war chest to invest in content with the uh, Apple streaming service coming very soon and any other deals that it might want to look at. I mean, I can't rule out Apple, I think, or Wall Street can't rule out Apple as a company that might go on an acquisition hunt for more growth in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They still feel still feels like they need that game changer. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. Alright, let's move on and talk Samsung shares under pressure. So it's a teller two halves here, down some two percent. The world's largest smartphone makers profits, plunging some 56% in Q2. That was better than expected, I have to say, but they were also hit by falling chip prices too. Anna Stewart joins me now. These guys are well and truly caught in the crossfire, weakening smartphone demand, chip price pressures. And this is a huge chunk of their business. And of course, trade tensions. And it's not just about US and China. Talk us through it.
3: Yeah, they are being hit in all directions. And we did kind of expect this. They did give us some warning uh, some weeks ago. The smartphone front, as you said, weak demand there, facing some similar issues to many rivals, um, slower upgrade cycles, that sort of thing. Uh, Then, of course, there is the US-China trade war. We knew that would weigh on this earnings report and the Huawei ban from the US in particular. Now, Samsung can fill a void in terms of the smartphones in some ways in the US, particularly in the low, mid-range smartphones. However, of course, it's a major supply to Huawei of memory chips so it's getting hit there particularly hard Um, and ultimately it also now faces another trade spat this time between Japan and South Korea because Japan has got export restrictions on very crucial materials that go into smart chips into South Korea and that could be set to get worse Japan is talking about removing South Korea from its trusted trade partners list Julia
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was pouring over the numbers here and you you raise all the important points here, I I didn't realize that three quarters of their operating profit comes from chip sales here. You think Samsung and you think smartphones, and it's simply not the case here. Having said that, are they going to get a bit of a lift when they uh, announce, what have we got, the Galaxy Note 10 and their foldable phone later on this year too? Yeah, we have the Galaxy Note 10, that's
3: uh, supposedly going to launch next week. I think though, due to a slowing upgrade cycle, that won't get quite as much interest as the foldable phone. That, a uh, rumours have it, could be launching in September, and it's more exciting by virtue of the fact that it tried to launch earlier in the year, it faced all those delays. You'll remember all those videos of early users trying it out and seeing that uh, the hinge broke, the, the screen broke, so there'll be lots of pressure on them to really get it right. Although there'll be lots of um, media interest, will it translate into sales? There are several issues at play here. Firstly, some insiders question whether people really want a foldable phone, whether it's a gimmick, and it feels like an old gimmick since it really announced this much, much earlier in the year. Also, it's likely to come out at the same sort of time as the next iPhone. Also, Huawei's own delayed foldable phone. Also, rumours of an LG and a Motorola uh, foldable phone as
0: well. Julia? Yeah, so there's going to be some stiff competition no matter what, to, what comes out here. And let's do a great job. Thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. North Korea has fired two short-range ballistic missiles off its east coast. It's the country's second missile launch in a week. That's according to South Korean military. Last week's launch was the first since Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump met in June. It comes as Pyongyang warns South Korea to cancel its upcoming joint military exercises with the United States is facing disruption as it braces for a major typhoon. Officials have raised the storm warning to the third highest level on its scale. Hundreds of flights have been disrupted. Schools and offices have closed and the financial markets have also shut early. Trading may be suspended on Thursday if the typhoon warning remains high of U.S. Democratic candidates faced off on Tuesday night in CNN's new round of presidential debates. Top progressive candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, clashed with their moderate rivals over health care and border issues. The second debate takes place tonight. All eyes will be on the much-anticipated rematch between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Phil Mattingly joins us now. Great to have you with us, Phil. I saw the Politico headline and it said Joe Biden actually won the debate last night because there was a a real sense now of how extreme some of the views out there right now. What was your takeaway and what were the highlights?
4: Yeah, look, it's it's nice to win a debate you don't participate in. And to some degree, I think that's true. Joe Biden's name wasn't brought up, even though he's the clear front runner in the race. And even though two of his kind of sharpest competitors in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were center stage throughout the course of the night. And it was their ideas that were repeatedly under attack from more moderate, more pragmatic individuals on that stage. I think you make a really good point. When you look at the Democratic Party, there are very clear fault lines between those who are very progressive, very left, if you will, who want to go big, who want to go bold, who want to pursue proposals that I think even in the last couple of years would have been considered completely out of the realm of possibility. And those Democrats who believe that that won't win you a general election, it might get the base excited. It might win a primary, but it won't win you the general election. And you got to see that laid bare last night. What was also interesting is Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are essentially fighting for the same pool of voters. There was some question last night as to whether they would start to clash with one another, try and draw some of their own contrast to split apart where they stand currently in the polling. That didn't happen. We basically saw some kind of unofficial non-aggression pact between the two as they fought back between the moderates. And I think it's something you're going to have to keep an eye on. At some point, those two are going to have to differentiate themselves. But last night, it was very clear they were essentially on the same team fighting against individuals in their own party.
0: Yeah, very collegiate. They're going to let everyone else fall first and then they'll turn around and just start attacking yeah. each other. To your point, I think, what do we expect from Joe Biden tonight? How does he handle what was an uncomfortable situation with Kamala Harris, of course, the last time these two faced off? And also at this stage, who does President Trump really have to worry about, if anyone?
4: Yeah, On the latter point, if you look at the polling and, and look, it's very early, it's very early on yeah. the polling. Everybody's learned their lesson about polling. But clearly when you look at the states that are crucial to President Trump, be it uh, Michigan, be it Pennsylvania, be it Wisconsin, Joe Biden is the biggest threat. When you look at the polling at this moment, again, it's early. But what's most interesting about tonight, you mentioned the Miami debate where Joe Biden had a very uneven performance, Kamala Harris really kind of lit him up. and kind of laid bare that he wasn't prepared, wasn't ready to respond, wasn't ready to respond to attacks. His numbers since that point in time, they dipped a little bit. They've started to come back to where they were. I think tonight is crucial because he has said and his team has said he will be ready. Tonight will be different. Here's what won't be different about tonight. He will be attacked repeatedly and not just by Senator Kamala Harris. He will be attacked by pretty much everyone on the stage over and over and over again, punching up to try and make a point, punching up to try and get a moment. If he is prepared, if he handles that, if he's able to brush it off and show that he's maybe the Joe Biden of a decade ago, then I think everything is going to be comfortable for his team. And it's going to be clear that he is certifiably the front runner in this campaign. If he is uneven again, if he gets knocked off balance or if he looks unprepared, that would be a big problem for his campaign. His team knows that. They've said he's prepared. But I think that's what everybody's going to keep their eyes on because it won't just be Kamala Harris tonight. It will be Cory Booker. It will be Michael Bennett. It will be everybody on stage with a big target on the back of the former vice president.
0: Yeah. You know, to your point, it is really early days. But I think for all the other candidates, they know who they've got to be. They know who they've got to tackle. Who do you think might surprise us? Because they feel like they're under a lot of pressure here to at least step up and be recognized and to to show they've got the metal to do this.
4: You make a really good point because this is a make or break debate, right? The next yeah. debate in September, the thresholds are higher. There's only five or six that have qualified, maybe seven to 10 will eventually get there. And so for everybody else, you either make it happen tonight or last night, or you don't exist in a couple of months from now. You run out of money, you run out of support, and you're not on the debate stage. Someone who will, who is already qualified for the second debate, but to keep an eye on, will also be standing next to the vice president. And that's Cory Booker. He has sharpened his attacks, senator from New Jersey, sharpened his attacks on the vice president, is well known, has good name recognition can raise money, but hasn't really broken through in the numbers game up to this point. Get ready for him to go after the vice president, trying to have his own Kamala Harris moment. This is a make or break moment for the Booker campaign to see if they're for real or whether or not he's gonna head back to the Senate. Watch him tonight. He'll be close in proximity, and the attacks should be coming fast and furious, according to folks tied to his campaign.
0: We absolutely will be watching. Phil Mattingly, great to have you on the show with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, don't miss it. Our second night of debates coverage beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern Time in the United States. But you can see encore presentations at 7 a.m. London Time, 2 p.m. in Hong Kong, Wednesday and Thursday, right here on CNN. All right, still to come here on First Move. Aston Martin losing steam. as demand in Europe stalls and the latest data breach to expose the personal information of millions of people. How the alleged Capital One hacker may have also preyed on others and given hints about it. That's all coming up. Stay with First Move. to first move where I actually have a better view up here and I can tell you futures are still indicating a positive open as we await that decision from the Federal Reserve. A cut expected. How big and what does the guidance look like? And of course we await President Trump's inevitable post meeting tweets and something tells me he's not going to be happy. Before the bell, new private payroll numbers to keep an eye on, too. U.S. companies adding some 156,000 jobs last month, a bit better than estimates. We've obviously got the U.S. releasing its non-farm payrolls numbers on Friday, so a little indicator ahead of that, too. Also, earnings out as well. GE shares up around 3% pre-market, beating expectations and raising its guidance, its outlook here, too, so investors liking that. We've also had European banking giants, BNP, Powerbar and Credit Suisse posting market-friendly results as well. What about uh, Apple as well? Because we've already talked about that on the show. Shares up pre-market following their earnings beat and a positive guidance coming from that despite a 12% drop in iPhone sales in the quarter. Let's talk this through more. Uh, Mike Olson is Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst at Pippa Jaffray. Mike, fantastic to have you with us. Give me your sense of uh, earnings here too and what you think of the numbers because you did raise your price target $243 here. Talk me through it.
5: Yeah, it was a solid quarter. You know, I think that there, there was uh, definitely some concern among some investors that there's just not a lot of catalysts right now, so we might see lackluster numbers. And as we look to the company really building a bridge to the future. They're doing a good job of just having stability in the business. And what I mean by a bridge to the future is they just need to maintain a stable business through the end of this year, at which point I think investors will start to focus on 5G iPhones coming out next year. So they did that through the non-iPhone device segments, uh, as well as um, you know decent strength within iPhone, which improved its year-over-year decline versus what we saw last quarter.
0: So it's just about maintaining similar kind of growth in the services segment, which is now 20% of their revenues. There was also a strong performance in in wearables, too. You're basically saying as long as they can be consistent with what they're seeing here, things will be okay.
5: That's that's basically what we're saying, because uh, this year is not going to be a very exciting iPhone year. The iPhones that come out uh, in September, October... Uh, will likely be more uh, evolutionary versus revolutionary. So as long as they can continue to drive strength within services, which as you mentioned, was solid on an organic kind of FX neutral basis, services revenue growth was 18% year over year, which was unchanged from what it was last quarter. So they uh, kind of maintained their um, strength there. And then yeah, wearables and some of the other segments, as long as those can, can, can continue to do well, then uh, that will again kind of build this bridge into the 5G iPhone excitement.
0: You know, it's interesting. Earlier on the show, we were talking about Samsung and the phones that they're going to bring out later on this year. Some of the other competitors also. What makes you so confident that when Apple comes up with its 5G phone next year that actually it's going to resonate with consumers the way that perhaps past upgrades have? Is it simply that they have so many customers out there that perhaps will upgrade? Um, It will resonate. And you assume that?
5: Yeah, that that is generally what we're assuming is that um, you know the intentions that we see in various surveys that we do to to buy an iPhone as your next phone, uh, whether you're a current iPhone owner or even in some cases owners of other devices, uh, the intentions are very high, and we think um, 5G will only intensify that upgrade cycle. You know, the last major upgrade cycle was the iPhone 6 Plus, and that caused dramatic uh, growth in iPhone units. We're only modeling for two percent growth in iPhone units in fiscal 21, so. The- the the year that will get the majority of benefit of the initial 5G launch. So we believe our numbers are relatively conservative, but we think that it will drive an upgrade cycle as 5G brings new features and functionality to the table.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The six feels like a really long time ago at this stage. Um, Let's talk about China as well, because obviously that caused a lot of the concern that we saw back in January. And they said they've seen a marked improvement there, a stabilisation really of demand. We know there's been stimulus from the Chinese government. We know that Apple's been cutting prices. What's your view on, on what we're seeing there? And do you think that they can maintain that too?
5: Yeah, that was definitely a positive point from the quarter. They talked about growth actually in mainland China specifically, uh, and, and you're right, some of it was external with um, some of the stimulus from China and some of it was internal related to what Apple was doing uh, with various incentives. So you know, based on that, we expect to see continued uh, positive trends um, or at least stable trends in China over the next several quarters. And this is another thing that can help investors get more comfort around the story
0: about Intel and the fact that they bought the chip business in the last week or so as well. We've talked endlessly on this show about the tensions between Apple and, and Qualcomm and the challenge that that presented. How strategic a move is this and what do you think this is going to mean going forward, particularly as we get into 5G phones and the technology into 2020?
5: I think a lot of it comes back to the 5G discussion we've been having, which is that Apple's going to want to have more control over their ability to um, get the, the, you know, pieces in place that they need from the supply chain and uh, owning this uh, apple or intel modem business is definitely a large part of that so i think it's a it's a good move uh in, in grand scheme of things a uh, billion dollars is a lot of money but not when you have 102 billion of net cash so i think it's the right move to just gain more control over their supply chain especially as we go into 5g
0: absolutely and the company buying 17 billion dollars worth of their own shares in the quarter as well that helps support the share price here too
5: Absolutely. And we expect to, to see more of that. You know, It's unlikely that Apple's going to do some sort of major acquisition. So we think the majority of that um, focus on getting the $102 billion of net cash down to a, a zero or net cash neutral position will be in the form of share buyback. So expect more where that Certainly came from.
0: Certainly helps. Mike Olson from Pepper Jaffray. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that price target there, $243. All right. The market open is next. Stay with First Moon. to first move and the opening bell this morning from the New York Stock Exchange. It is Wednesday and we do see a higher open for stocks as anticipated. We're counting down, of course, to the Federal Reserve rate decision later on today. The first cut expected in more than a decade, in fact, since the financial crisis. Joining other central banks, though, that have recently eased, we've also got a J-POW press conference as well, guidance. What are we looking at in terms of data dependency over future rate cuts, particularly given the market's pricing around three cuts for this year? Not the only thing we're watching, though, of course. Trade talks wrapping up over in Shanghai. No breakthroughs there, but no breakthroughs of Mr were expected and uh, they will be meeting again in September. Also worth pointing out, it is the last trading day of the month today. Before today's session, the down, the S&P were up some 2% in July. The Nasdaq, in fact, up more than 3%. Stocks have risen in every month this year, except May, when we saw the US-China trade talks breaking it down really formally for the first time. Interesting performance and a lot of expectations I think for easing here. Let's talk us through with uh, Michael Faroli. He's chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Michael, fantastic to have you on the show. As I've been pointing out on the show already this morning, we have to separate Federal Reserve rate cuts from the forward guidance. But as far as the cuts are concerned, you're expecting a quarter of a percent and no more today.
6: That's right. I think, uh, you know, the Fed communications has been a bit uh, all over the map, really, over the past month. But I think toward the end, uh, within about a week or two ago, I think that communications really started to hone down to... getting markets to expect only 25 basis points. There had been some anticipation earlier in in July of a 50 basis point cut. But as I said, I think the communications uh, is now pointing to 25 basis points for today.
0: Calibrating what the outlook is for the Federal Reserve here is tough. The market's got three cuts almost priced this year. We've seen a a Fed-driven rally in, in broader markets, particularly for U.S. stocks this year. How do they keep everybody happy here and leave themselves open to providing more stimulus if it's required, particularly given some of the data since the last meeting has been improving.
6: Yeah, that's right. I think the Fed has been in, an, in kind of an unusual situation really over the past month, because at the June FOMC meeting, they really strongly signaled that they were gonna be cutting in July. And then in the period since then, most of the data have come in better than expected. So I think as we, you know, today, I think the guidance toward the next meeting, which is in September, We'll probably try and emphasize that they're going to be a little more um, data dependent. And if the data is good, that maybe they won't have to cut again. If it's a little disappointing, you know, that they'll continue to ease. But I think, uh, you know, as I said, the last period that we've had over the last month has been by Fed standards unusual, right? Usually when they think they're going to cut, they just cut rather than say, we're going to cut in a month from now. Uh, So I think probably there are some on the Federal Open Market Committee uh at the fed who are going to be a little bit unhappy with that situation and will want to have a little more flexibility uh as they head towards September. That said in terms of keeping everyone happy, well, you know, that's not their job. Their job is to keep the economy <laughs> on a sustainable path and uh you know, someone is always going to be disappointed, but that as I said that's not really their job
0: their job, but it's also arguably their job not to create volatility. And we saw a huge sell-off in December. We've seen a a rally subsequently. Um, Is there a credibility issue here? Always seven months between hiking rates and then cutting rates, particularly given the the noise and the news flow and the the lack of certainty over trade negotiations too, Um, par for the course here. They're showing that they react where necessary.
6: Yeah, well, you know, look, they're not perfect forecasters. I think a year ago it seemed like the economy was on a pretty good path. Uh, then we had some disruptions related to trade, which was really out of their hands. And so I think, you know, the best thing to do is just to react nimbly when you can. Uh, and you know, look at if the economy remains in a good place, and it's a, it's in a good place now, uh, then I think all will be forgiven, right? So if if a year from now we continue to have very low unemployment, stable inflation. It doesn't really matter that there have been some missteps or some, you know, some back and forth in terms of what the Fed's done. Uh, but yes, I, I don't think they want to create undue volatility. Uh, sometimes that just happens because, one, you have a very large committee and so views are going to differ. And so what the market hears from that committee are going to differ. Uh, but also, you know, look, the world is a, is a volatile place. And sometimes the president can tweet things about trade policy that, cause disruptions and that the Fed has to react to that. So, uh, yes, I agree they want to limit volatility, but they also ultimately just want to keep the economy in a good place where it is now. And I think if if that remains the case, you know, we'll we'll get past this.
0: (laughs) They'll certainly try. I mean, they've emphasized many times now the international outlook and the challenge that presents, whether it's trade. And we saw the talks wrapping up very quickly overnight in, in Shanghai. Europe's slowing, the European Central Bank is going to provide support here. How high or or how low is the bar at this stage for cutting further in your mind, given how strong the consumer is, the softness in inflation, they're kind of considering a lot of different things here.
6: Yeah. Yeah. So I think the bar is pretty low for them to ease again in September. That's actually our forecast. Uh, And I think the reason that's the case is, as you mentioned, one inflation uh, remains very low. So that's not a problem. Uh, and the second is, as you, you, know, as you also <laughs> mentioned, the global backdrop uh, is not supportive at all. Uh, and that means that you know, rates around 2% uh, look high by comparison to global uh, standards. So you know, I think if there's even the slightest wobble in the growth data between now and September, that gives them uh, the leeway to cut uh, again in September. So I think the bar, the bar is pretty low, uh, I think beyond September you know, again, it becomes more and more data dependent, I think, the farther uh, in time we go.
0: Speaking of data, Michael, very quickly, payrolls tomorrow, what's your expectation here and what should we be looking for?
6: Right, so payrolls uh, on Friday, were, um, we're pretty close to the market, which is 100, uh, Are looking? we are looking for 155,000 jobs to be created uh, in July, which is a little below the three-month average, which is about 170,000. Uh, Pretty close to what consensus is looking for. Uh, You know, I I think the big picture here is that job growth uh, looks to be slowing uh, somewhat from the pace of the last few years, but that slowdown so far doesn't look uh, to be too abrupt. Uh, And we had that, uh, we saw that again in this morning's ADP report, which is kind of a a bit of a preview for what we can expect on Friday. So, generally, uh, looking for still pretty solid job growth, uh, though perhaps not quite as boomy as we've seen in prior years
0: sense. And thank you for the delicate correction there. Tomorrow is not Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it's Thursday. Wish wishing it my life away. <laughs> I know. Michael really US economist at JP Morgan. Thank you so much for that. Good to see you. <laughs> All right. Let's move on and talk about the global movers here. Spotify in focus. The music streamers QT revenues beating estimates. However, premium subscribers rose some 30% year on year to 108 million, just missing expectations about three and a half percent at this stage. General Electric higher. their Q2 earnings beating expectations. The struggling conglomerate also are boosting its full year outlook. The company now anticipates industrial free cash flow between negative one billion dollars and positive one billion dollars for 2019. It's an interesting range. It's strong indication that CEO Larry Copp's turnaround plans are gaining traction but actually moving around a bit to actually now lower As the session gets opened up here, Carlyle Group abandoning its tax advantaged partnership status. It will become the first U.S. private equity firm to hold shareholder votes. The move is an effort to improve its share price. It will allow the company to be included in indices that exclude publicly traded partnerships. The conversion is expected to be complete on January 1st of next year. All right, let's move on because there are new developments regarding the huge Capital One hack attack that we discussed on the show yesterday. The alleged hacker may have targeted other companies as well. Donia Sullivan joins us live on this. Who else might be in the equation here? And I guess do we know uh, know these details because the hacker was blogging about these names as well as uh, Capital One?
7: Julia, it's really extraordinary when you think of the lengths that some hackers will go to to cover their tracks and make sure that they are not caught. Um, In this instance, Paige Thompson, the um, suspect in this case, was um, allegedly um, bragging on Twitter and also on Slack and other social media platforms about what she had found. Um, On Slack, uh, she had allegedly posted a list of file names And the files had certain companies and organizations' names in those. Now, those files, she indicated that there was hacked materials in those files. Uh, Those organizations include the Ohio Department of Transportation, uh, Ford the Motor Company, the British uh, telecoms company Vodafone, and Michigan State University. Uh, CNN reached out to all those organizations yesterday. None of them have said that they... That they have been hacked, but all of them said they are looking into it. And the Ohio uh, Department of Transportation said uh, they have reached out to the FBI to figure out uh, really what's going on.
0: It's quite fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we also talked on the show yesterday about her apparently being part of a a network called Meetup that listed their interests as hacking and cracking here. When you're an employer of somebody like this or you're a company like Capital One, what checks are in place to look at your employees, perhaps, or those working for you or around you that have interests listed like this or are blogging certain things like this? It's it's kind of mind-boggling.
7: No, it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, how Capital One found out about this was that a tipster emailed them and said... Uh, hey guys, there's a person online who's claiming to have, um, you know, records of millions of your customers and people who have applied for credit cards from you. Um, and this uh, hack allegedly started back in March. So that's quite a few months ago. You think about, you know, how much companies invest in cybersecurity and particularly financial institutions. Um, but you also think about there's a lot of organizations who, pay for sort of social media listening tools to see what is being said about them out in the public and out on Twitter. Um, And in all those cases it seemed that it didn't, that this did not come on Capital One's radar, even though this woman was posting about it on Twitter and Slack. I must say the Slack uh, channel where these files were posted did get taken down yesterday, but CNN was able to uh, get in there before it got taken down. My uh, colleague Kevin Collier was able uh, to get into that. And the DOJ Uh, the Department of Justice here who brought the charges against Paige Thompson are telling us that based on their, their investigation is ongoing and more charges may be coming.
0: Yeah, we'll watch this space. But to your point about the investment in cybersecurity protections, not enough. Donia Sullivan, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up shortly, up in the skies, Airbus forecasting Brexit headwinds as a no-deal exit looms large back on the ground. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to the show and some sad news now. The body of the founder of India's biggest coffee chain has been found two days after he disappeared. Nikko Kumar has more.
8: A tragic end to a standout entrepreneurial career indian authorities say they found the body of vg siddhartha the founder of cafe coffee day the country's largest coffee chain following a massive surge after he went missing earlier in the week siddhartha went missing in southern karnataka state according to police he asked his chauffeur to drive him to a local river before leaving the car to go for a walk on a bridge he never came back. His body was found in the same river on Wednesday. Siddhartha's business introduced millions of Indians to the cafe chain culture that's gone global with the expansion of Starbucks. In India, his business is far and away the leader in the sector. Cafe Coffee Day boasts more than 1,700 outlets across 245 Indian cities. Starbucks, in comparison, has 146 outlets in this country of more than 1.3 billion people. In a statement to the Bombay Stock Exchange, where its shares plunged on the news, Cafe Coffee Day's parent released a letter purportedly written and signed by Siddhartha before he went missing in it. He says he was facing, quote, tremendous pressure from lenders that led him to, quote, succumbing to the situation. The company says it's still trying to verify the authenticity of the letter. It was dated the 27th of July. Nikhil Kumar, CNN, New Delhi.
0: Nikhil Kumar there, and our thoughts, of course, to anyone involved or those who knew him. All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. A no-deal Brexit is on the radar for Airbus. The plane maker is urging European governments to step up preparations before the October deadline. This comes as Airbus reported strong earnings with profits rising some 72%. The company is on course to overtake Boeing as the world's top plane maker by the end of 2019. Now to 007's getaway car of choice. The British carmaker Aston Martin posting a half yearly loss of some 69 million dollars on Wednesday. Shares are plunged in London today and have now lost three quarters of their value since its IPO last October. The company says an economic slowdown and weakening demand for luxury cars is to blame. Credit Suisse stock is up over 4% in Zurich, the Swiss bank reporting its best quarterly earnings in four years. They jumped some 45%. The company praised its cost cutting strategy for the performance. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, putting the ethics into artificial intelligence. We hear from the next generation platform that has $1 billion of investment from Microsoft. Now what? We'll find out after this. The show and we are in the chat room with Greg Brockman today. He's the co-founder and chairman of OpenAI, an artificial intelligence research firm that was also co-founded by Elon Musk. Their goal is to build a next-generation platform that's powerful but also ethical and trustworthy. They also announced a $1 billion investment from Microsoft. I asked Greg, what Microsoft and big tech giant brings to the table?
9: What's really important for making progress towards artificial general intelligence is building very large supercomputers. Uh, And what we're going to be doing with Microsoft is going to be building supercomputers of unprecedented scale.
0: Okay, the key there was, in the word, artificial general intelligence. Explain to me what AGI is versus the times where we just use the term artificial intelligence and perhaps don't really isolate what we're talking about here.
9: So artificial intelligence today looks a lot like, in capabilities, the, uh, you know, individual brain regions, right? We have systems that can see, that can speak, but they can't really understand a domain. What artificial general intelligence will be is a system which can understand an entire field better than any one human and can understand more fields than one human and can integrate information across those.
0: So are we talking about human intelligence capabilities if we're talking about something that can perhaps process data, make judgment calls on data better than a human can?
9: So what we're really interested in is systems that can perform tasks that are too complex for humans to do. Think about medicine, for example. The way that we approach medicine these days is through increased specialization. You know, I have a friend who's going through medical procedures today where he gets an ultrasound from one doctor who can't even read it, has to send him to another doctor who doesn't have context. And I think for us to really deliver cheap, affordable healthcare to everyone, we're going to need a better answer. And so for problems like this and other problems that are too complex, that's what general intelligence is for.
0: The level of interest and therefore investment in artificial intelligence has been pretty volatile over the last five decades. I asked Greg if the acceleration in sheer computational power today would turn hype about AI into reality.
9: I think that the history is also very interesting. That before 2012, the amount of computational progress was exactly equivalent to Moore's law. So that's an 18-month doubling period. Since 2012, we have had a five times increase. Every two years, we now cover the same ground that we did in a decade previously. And this is being translated into results that you can look at at these big companies that are generating huge amounts of revenue. Uh, If you look at, for example, after we did this deal with Microsoft, where they invested a billion dollars, their market cap increased by $10 billion. And that's because people understand these technologies are becoming so powerful and that you really can't put a bound on where they're going to go.
0: I mean, there's all sorts of names in this space. Google, would be one. Facebook's looking at it. Baidu, Tencent. Who's winning this competition? Who's most advanced at this stage? Would you say? And are we in a war with some of the big Chinese players in this space? Is this sort of a U.S. versus China battle to, to own and to, to lead in this technology?
9: I think that OpenAI has done a, a really remarkable job for being a uh, you know an upstart started about three years ago, uh, and that we've had some of the field-leading results. Uh, in In you know the past twelve to twenty four months, um, you know I think that, that Google and and uh, you know particularly uh, you know they, they have a couple of different labs that have also produced great results, and you know the other players that you mentioned as well. Um, but I think that what's really important to us is that general intelligence does not turn into an arms race. If you think about creating the most transformative technology that's ever happened that you know brings in the next industrial revolution, that getting that right on behalf of humanity is the most important thing. And if there's a race where people give up on safety and there's a race to the bottom on just trying to get it out the door, I think that's going to be bad for everyone.
0: Critics arguably say this is not the best way to democratize artificial intelligence. Greg said it's the outcome for the world that matters. Listen in.
9: The way that I think about it is that if you look at the current world's most valuable companies seven of them are, are technology companies whoever builds artificial general intelligence is going to be by a massive margin the number one most valuable company and so if you look at how we do this our structure any investor that comes in will be paid back a fixed amount but everything else is owned by the world and i think that at the end of the day focusing on this end goal making sure that ai artificial general intelligence is used safely and securely for good applications that benefit the world all of that is what we are focused on
0: so to those that say this is a silicon valley vanity project because i've seen that quoted as well what do you say to those people
9: I actually don't listen too much to those people. I think that uh, there's always going to be critics. And if you look at the history of technologies, uh, you know, one of my one of my favorite stories of this is uh, uh, 1878, uh, Thomas Edison announced he was going to be building an incandescent lamp and gas securities in England <laughs> fell. So the British Parliament put together a, a commission of distinguished experts who went out to Menlo Park and checked it all out. They came back and said, this is never going to work. One year later, he shipped. Now, I'm not saying that that, you know, again, I think that, the, that there is uncertainty. And I think that that really what happens in this field is anyone who's certain, I think, is really setting themselves up uh, for for some real surprises. And so for us, we look to the logical conclusions of where this technology can go. We look at our projections. We look at the progress we are able to, to make. And I think that you can't put a bound on what we're going to be able to do.
0: I like surprises. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours.